Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. This month in association with Rehab My Patient, and this is session 94. Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. Jack March here, stepping in for the intro for Jack Chu. And I'm not going to lie, that's because we've got quite a lot of information to get through and we didn't want to make the introduction 20 minutes long. So this month, we are delighted to be joined in the studio with um, Karen Forshaw, Chrissy Mowbray and Joe Turner to talk about all things resilience. And they get through some really great topics, which are super important at the moment with all the problems we're having with COVID-19 and healthcare professionals getting a bit of a bad rap. So really useful information. Hopefully there'll be tons for you to take away. Not only have we got this podcast with Karen and Chrissy, but also they very kindly provided us with a discount code for their new book, which you can find in the description of the podcast. Um, there's some instructions there on how to obtain that, and they have got even more information on how to be more resilient in your practice. Finally, if that's not enough, we're also running two events with Chrissy and Karen where they're going to go through resilience for you in a more practical manner and answer your questions, teach you how to do that, and bring their very successful course to healthcare professionals as well. So please look out on social media for information of that coming very, very soon. Finally, we have just released tickets for Therapy Live Sport as well. So go to therapy-live.co.uk forward slash tickets to grab your free ticket. This year's Therapy Live Sport event is all about gym sports, where we're going to talk all about lifting heavy weights, doing CrossFit, calisthenics, anything that people might do in a gym situation. So it's going to be super fascinating really try and dispel some of the gadgets, gizmos and all around BS that you get within those situations as well. And of course, don't forget to sign up for the recordings as well. You can do that either as a one-off purchase for just these, or you can become a membership and get access to all of the recordings from what is now five previous Therapy Live shows. I have in fact lost count of how many hours of CPD there is there, so it's certainly worth doing that. So enough from me, and I'll let you get on with listening to Karen, Chrissy, Joe and Jack, all about resilience. Delighted to be here today with Chrissy Mowbray and Karen Forshaw alongside Joe Turner, co-host for this episode. And uh, if this all goes well as a conversation, you'll hear very little from me because we've got three actual experts in the room to conduct a discussion in and around. I mean, I'm not going to frame it any tighter than collision well-being, especially interprofessionally. Uh, we've got a doctor and a physio discussing all these things together with Joe, who also runs our You Matter podcast. If you've not found that, then do go have a look for that on our feeds. A uh, really important topic, especially I think any time, but at the moment, above all else, the otherwise well-being of, of, of clinicians in, in otherwise challenging times is, is so important and high on our agenda. And so I'm delighted to be able to broadcast this conversation uh, and to discuss some of the conclusions uh, that these three ladies have come to and the resources that then uh, they are they are delivering to clinicians elsewhere. So um, I want to introduce, of course, to those that don't know her, Joe Turner, the host of You Matter podcast and our collaborator, 
on all things physiomatics and therapy live these days. But Joe, uh, tell me a little bit about what you're looking forward to on this conversation and then introduce our guests. Oh, I'm just really excited to be talking to two other clinicians who are interested in um, presumably many of the same things as me um, and you know to to have people who've come from that clinical background uh, and whose careers have moved a little bit um, and found ways to deliver these um, well-being messages and services in the ways that you have which we're going to talk about more is really really interesting to me and um, yeah I'm just Really looking forward to learning how you went about that um, and uh, what your plans are moving on. Fantastic. So first one's easy then, really. If we could give a, a quick intro for us, uh, Karen and Chrissy, in whatever order, and then we'll, we'll get stuck into the chat. Uh, I'm Chrissy Mowbray. Um, I've been a physiotherapist since 1993 and had quite a varied career in terms of worked in the NHS in um, adult learning disabilities for a long time and paediatrics. And now I work in my own clinic in a MSK um, in Aquas. And also I trained as a hypnotherapist quite early on in my career. And I am a psychotherapist with qualifications in CBT and NLP as well. So in my um, MSK work privately, it's a very sort of um, holistic approach that we take. And that partly is why I've kind of uh, moved towards well-being resilience. I'm Karen Forshaw. I'm a GP in South Yorkshire, practicing GP. Um, I'm a partner in my practice. I'm a GP trainer, I'm also a GP appraiser, um, and I'm a mentor for our local medical council, our LNC. Um, I run the kind of um, planned learning events of the CPD sessions for the um, GPs in Doncaster, um, actually and practice nurses as well, so I oversee those sessions. Um, and then I do the work that Chrissy and I do around resilience, because I just... I see it all the time, really. So in with colleagues and with people who are coming through in training um, and as an appraiser, kind of seeing people retire early because of burnout and stress and recognise how important this is as a topic and we want to do something about it. So, Chrissy and Karen, um, I'm interested to know how this started between the two of you. So did you work together? Did you just hear about each other? How did it come to be that you decided to do this kind of resilience work as a partnership? So actually, we met as friends. Um, so we were part of the same uh, baby group in our village. Oh, really? <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and so our, our children, well, your, two of yours are older, aren't they? Um, mm. So it was about nearly 15 years ago, really, when we met. And I think we gravitated towards each other as healthcare professionals. Um, we just generally started chatting, didn't we? And then when we both back, went back to work, we were still going to the groups on days off. And I used to ask Christy physio questions <laughs> and say, what do you think about this? And then sometimes she would ask me kind of, you know, med more medical questions about some of her MSK patients. Um, and so we shared knowledge. That was the first step, really. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, we we uh, asked each other for coping mechanisms as well and coping strategies for our patients. So we would share sort of problem patients, people who had more um, complex needs, really. If, if we were worried about somebody and this we're going to get onto this later on, but this is about bringing work home. So Karen and I would bring work home. We would yep. bring work to the toddler group and I would have in my head this person I'm worried about, like something underlying and, you know, and the same with Karen. And we would kind of crunch through our heart sync patients together, which we do not do any 
anymore because we are resilient. But, um, <laughs> but that is how it came about, is, is the sharing of knowledge and the sharing of strategies, coping strategies for patients and also kind of bouncing things off each other when there was nobody at work to bounce them off. That's and then we started to... Uh, then we started to explore kind of different ways of coping with things. So Chrissy taught me about meditation and mindfulness, which were not things that I had really um, kind of got involved in, I think. I think maybe because I thought I was a scientist and that wasn't, you know, that wasn't that wasn't my kind of thing. But actually, I just found it was so useful and helpful that I took those lessons on board. And I started to teach that kind of thing to patients, talking to people with anxiety um, and then just got more and more interested in all of the different kind of ways of dealing with unusual thoughts that we're having and the feelings that come from those thoughts and which then lead on to behaviours, which is a bit around the CBT model. And our knowledge just grew, didn't it? Yeah. And um, oh, oh, yeah, so so we um, we wrote down one of our uh, our first original tool um, is something that I used to do in clinic, and Karen and I discussed it. We called it Five Point Rescue Plan, and it was a way for patients to strategize their way through any problem. Basically, it started with the MSK, um, mm. looking at uh, it started pain actually, yeah. But then we realized we could apply it to everything, and then we started to talk to our colleagues about it, and we started to talk to we started to use it very much for ourselves. And, and sort of point each other in the right direction when there was an issue and we thought we would write that down for patients so we published a book called the five point rescue plan which basically tells you how to do how to use that tool and um whilst doing this and using the other other strategies we realized there was a huge need within the healthcare professions for resilience and well-being and that people were crying out for it and we looked at the statistics and we thought that um we should we should be providing this you know we should be at least opening the discussion and we approached the royal college of general practitioners um to say that we'd like to talk about resilience and well-being and share some of our tools particularly the five-point rescue plan um and from that we did some training and got some fantastic feedback and we've been teaching there for a number of years and then we've been approached by um other organizations because of it so there clearly is a need for well-being mm, training absolutely thank you so it sounds like um the process started well obviously at baby group but um then you delivering these tools to patients and and then into the clinical world did the material change greatly from what you were delivering to your patients? I mean, did you consciously change it or did feedback um, suggest that there was a need to change it and present it in any different way? So the basics are the same, you know, mm. the tools that we use. So meditation, mindfulness, looking at CBT strategies, the five foot rescue plan, breathing techniques, all of these things are out there it's about how you apply them so so really when we're talking to a healthcare professional we may talk more about how to apply the tools in your clinical day so you know where to find space which tool would be useful if you've had a you know a really horrible complaint from somebody now you've got to sit down and do the rest of your clinic so you might need to compartmentalize so you actually need yeah. something that's going to help you do that or um something that we found really important actually for healthcare professionals is the concept of empathy so that's a that's a big thing that gets taught in medical school we need to be empathic we need to feel our patient's pain but actually if you're feeling somebody's pain several times a day that's actually quite detrimental to you so we try and encourage compassion 
rather than empathy because with compassion you are understanding how something's affecting somebody and you're willing to help them with what's going on but you're not actually physically feeling what's going on for them you're not having kind of surges in your own stress hormones because remember that when you imagine something horrible happening or try and try and feel how somebody might be feeling you will actually be affecting your own body chemistry you will be you'll have a surge in your adrenaline your cortisol levels and get the associated side effects from that which is headaches stomach pains you know and sometimes feeling a bit short of breath, a little bit of palpitations. And that's not what you need when you're trying to deal with a patient who's in distress. You actually need compassion. And so, so, so that has formed a larger part of our kind of teaching for healthcare professionals. But also that's relevant in everyday life for people as well, isn't it? You know, if, you, mm. if your neighbour's got something going on or a, a family member, it's, it's helpful. Um, so the skills are universal but it's the application of them that might change. And usually find that um, when you're, whoever you're addressing, they will tell you, they will lead you to, to you know, where they need to do the work. So um, a lot of my psychotherapy, we, we basically, we lose or give away our energy throughout the day and burnout is about being depleted. And whether that's because you're in an argument with somebody and you're not expressing yourself appropriately or somebody's triggering you because there's some work that you need to do within uh, you on your self-worth and so on, or whether it's because, and you're giving too much empathy to patients and feeling what they feel, that there are all sorts of ways of, of losing energy. And if we leave work feeling very depleted, and also, as I was saying before, about sort of contacting patients at the end of the day or ruminating about them, you know, when you're not at work, that's a sign that you're kind of still attached. You've, you've sort of given your energy and you haven't you haven't replenished it, um, so to speak. And so when we do that over and over again, day after day, we, we're basically, we have not got any, any reserves and so that leads to burnout and this is really about how we we waste our energy um you know with our own sort of uh we call it our own stuff you know so it, it's a really good way of um of sort of describing kind of uh, all of the things that make you who you think you are so your conditioning what you were brought up to believe and what your life experiences are and how that's led to your your building this unique model of the world from which you sort of all your behaviors come all your core beliefs come um and um it affects, you know, when you see a patient, you can't do anything but see it through your unique lens. And it's about identifying um, how that unique lens impacts on your work with that patient and also minimising your kind of becoming involved, your stuff becoming around, um, you know, it, it being about your self-worth, it being how important it is that you make somebody better. Or, you know, if somebody says something that upset you, that upsets you, that highlights a, a sort of self-worth issue, all of those things are are things that can be addressed personally later on once you've identified that's what it is and it makes it much easier to give somebody what they need when your stuff isn't involved in it if that makes mm. sense yeah, it so it's a, it's a personal thing sorry I was just gonna say it's a personal thing so you can you can make a distinction between health professionals and patients but it, it's a human need and it's very individual to that person no, that makes sense. And that distinction makes makes perfect sense. I think if physio matters had a trigger word, it'd probably be recipe. So I'm fascinated because one size rarely does fit all. We've actually been born of a cookie cutter approach to MSK healthcare and an implication that there is protocols or recipes that could be implied to pathology, to other 
complex systems to imply that they aren't actually complex and that these things can be reduced to a monocausal model. So instead, reasoning over recipes is almost a, a mantra. Now, doesn't mean, though, uh, if a recipe is broad enough, of course, then that it can still be appropriate. So I, I, I doubt, although I haven't, haven't read your book, I just wanted to invite, what is it then that means that a five-step recipe plan would be appropriate for something as complex as mental health? And how, how could, in your instance, one size fit all to you? Because the five-point rescue plan is your personal plan and those points are entirely yours. So they have to be right. relevant to the problem. They have to, you have, first of all, I mean, the five-point rescue plan is one of our 60 tools in the book. <laughs> so it's tiny compared to the other stuff we do. But but basically, um, it is, you you identify the problem. Um, so, for example, I'd have somebody coming come in with knee pain in tears. And it's rare you would cry with pain unless that pain is meaning you can't do your Sunday walks with your family. Um, your husband doesn't understand that you might have to have a knee replacement, you fear having. And so actually the problem there is the fear and the lack of understanding. And so you have to actually identify what is the problem to start with. So say the problem is pain. You are looking at five things that will make you feel better. So one might be to take your medication. Another might be to apply heat. Another might be to do your exercises. So when somebody's in a real sort of, I'm having a terrible, terrible day with my pain, you would encourage them to visit, first of all, three of those. So take medication, put some heat on, um, talk to somebody if that's one of your points, but you've got five points. By the time you've done three of them, you are starting to feel more in control and that things are getting better and then it's easier to do the other two. So that would apply for, I mean, we've applied it to uh, grief, we've applied it to addiction. It's about having kind of um, one of my patients called them rescue points that's why we call it five point rescue plan it's about yeah. having something there that I know makes me feel more in control and makes me feel better um personally for me regardless of the evidence this is my formula that works for me and they have to be easy to implement so if you're trying to lose weight don't say you're going to go to the gym five times a week if you hate going to the gym you know walk your dog if you love your dog so it's all about a pl- it's your personal recipe so it's it's entirely bespoke yeah, yeah, no, that makes that makes that makes sense, and and personalising it to that effect. I wondered, um, with regards to Karen, what you mentioned about the physiological response to what would be empathy, and, and to take on someone else or try to see the world through their their eyes, walk in their shoes, whatever metaphor we decide to use, is that something we know of and is evidenced as a as a, a universal? Like, is that something that has to be pathological? Like, I'm, I, I've, I've not really heard. Obviously, I can acknowledge and understand that sensation experience it fairly regularly but I've not necessarily always associated that as being like a it's gonna feed a chronic stress type thing it's like positives of of, of acute stress versus chronic stress and stuff and what what I felt like maybe you were saying is that that we, we understand it to be something that can become inherently pathological and people can really alter their inherent uh, physiology by by over empathizing if if that's a phrase so basically what happens is if you are trying to understand how somebody feels you imagine don't you how you would feel in their shoes so you or you maybe have had a similar situation to them so for example grief um, if you're dealing with somebody that's grieving if you've lost a parent or you know a friend you will remember what happened to you you won't actually know what happens or is happening inside the, your patient what you'll do is you'll internalize it and you'll make it how you would feel. And when we imagine fear, grief, anger, all of those kind of negative emotions, 
we actually then will trigger a flight fight response in ourselves. So that's increased levels of adrenaline, increased levels of cortisol. And even if that's at a lower level than if it was actually happening at the time, it's still there. You're still increasing those chemicals in your own body. And when you do that over and over again, that it builds up. And if you're not doing things to actually then downregulate them, so things like physical activity can downregulate um, your stress hormones, can't it? Doing things that you enjoy mm-hmm. doing, all of the self care stuff that people talk about, that's all designed to dampen down the fight flight response. Yeah. Um, if you are basically continually having high levels of those chemicals, then you do end up, you end up a bit hypersensitive actually almost. And then things that don't even, wouldn't normally maybe upset you then do trigger your more of your fight flight hormones and it just goes round and round in a vicious circle and that's how people can end up really chronically burnt out and and that is what chronic stress is really and it's and and so those much like if they are um, because of empathy and you're therefore bringing that on yourself is that inherently is that inherently bad and therefore needs to be reframed and readjusted as as compassion or is it that that needs to have coping strategies or both both actually I think it is inherently bad I think that I think what's happened is that people have taken the word empathy and in medical training that's become really kind of fashionable and it's become what you have to prove you can do Uh, and I think as well we the people that go into healthcare professionals are innately caring people aren't they you don't go into that profession unless you kind of want to do it really (laughs) um and and you know Because why would you? Because it's long training. All all our large healthcare professionals have long training. It's hard work. You know, we we don't get the best press sometimes, do we? And you know, but we still do that because that's something that we want to do. So I so I think that there are um, a type of person that goes into it. I think you've got to be careful then as well. Sometimes if you're wanting to be a brilliant kind of clinician that doc, that, um, that patients like, that they get on with, you're constantly trying to please people. So you fall into these kinds of ways of, um, ways of conducting yourself and your consultations that can be detrimental to your own health. And that is what creates burnout, definitely. So yes, I think that we do need, we need coping strategies to deal with when um when you feel your chemical levels are increasing when you're feeling stressed when you're feeling anxious about things but also yes we do need to reframe and reframing is a brilliant word mm-hmm. because that's what it's all about if we can reframe our core beliefs to to have less of a need to be liked less of a need to be kind of right all the time less of a need to be um you know this this perfect person then our need to drive or the drive that we sometimes get into um, that can create some negative behaviours goes away and we will be better equipped to deal with a patient's problem with them. Also adding to that I I think it's really important to say if we're projecting if we're kind of um, if it's if it's bringing up in us how we might have felt in a similar situation we're likely to presume what somebody needs as well and Right. because it's what we might have needed and with the best will in the world and also what we've seen you know our relatives or in or other patients even even and actually it is really helpful sometimes to um we we advocate something called observe and choose so when you see this rising in yourself to actually just press pause and say okay i, I feel i feel i'm making an assumption and actually to stand back and, and say i can i can see that this is distressing for you what do you need and often our patients will really surprise us because it's not what i would have needed 
and I was about to give you, you know, oh, you know, I was about to. And actually what we need is something really practical or something, you know, um, or they just want you to get an answer from the the GP or, or, or the specialist. And so to actually stand back and make it less about you and more about them is really helpful on both on both sides of the story, really. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fascinating. I think the, the, the inherent negative thing I feel like if we've got time to, I'd, li- I'd like to come back to. But one of the things that's very much music to my ears is the, um, the sort of inference that has come become trendy, as you describe it, about empathy being um, just just nothing nothing but an upside, right? And that the, the more empathetic system would only only be positive. Forgetting the human interface of the clinicians delivering said empathy and failing to recognise that that can be challenged. Also, I've been talking recently uh, within interestingly adult learning difficulties and, and disabilities is that that the 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 way in which some of these professions, our professions that would benefit greatly from various different neurodiverse populations in which struggle famously with empathy and other emotions of which then uh, means that we're then ruling them out if we want that only bleeding hearts need apply. That, yeah. that for me is, is a concern on a workforce level when we're struggling to recruit amongst yeah. other things. So absolutely yeah. agree. Um, Joe, also, wanted- I just want to add something else in because interestingly, they did a study and patients, um, they like empathic doctors but they prefer compassionate doctors because they're more practical and they get things done so <laughs> yeah. it was a palliative care study mm, no it's interesting and, uh, and and certainly again one for later in the conversation if, if we've time but a, a book that I probably it's it's not it's not in a medical context but it reminds me a bit of a book by a, a psychologist called Paul Bloom called Against Empathy a case for rational compassion he was making the case about empathy as an emotion of which is unreliable on a policy level because of the way in which it can therefore be skewed. It's a very visceral, very evolved emotion and, uh, and, and a really interesting aside then into the, into the policy game. But let's, let's keep it clinical, let's keep it practical. And, 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 and Joe, I, I definitely don't <clears throat> want to invite your thoughts on, on some of that stuff because it feels like echoes of our previous broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to think about the, I guess the borders of your own empathy, you know, that you probably don't ever want to divorce yourself from that skill and be able to bring it in flexibly when appropriate. But I hear what you're saying. Compassion almost brings um, a a sensible limit and a a boundary, which still feels um, as if you are able to create a close relationship with the client, but not to your own detriment. Um, and your own energy and you know then the knock-on effects to the other people in your life that are not your patients uh, or not to mention just yourself um we, we've talked a lot about the word empathy and I wanted to pick up on the resilience word as well which is something you to use a lot and it's a word that has come up more when I've been having conversations with other doctors than physiotherapists um, and I, I'm sure you two have been asked this question many times and I apologise um, because I know resilience is a buzzword and gets good press and bad press in, in clinical fields. Um, just to sort of present the bad side um, or the, the less popular interpretation, a lot of my medic friends say that that was the first message they picked up actually at, at medical school. Um, and you mentioned being taught that we're supposed to be um, empathic, but um I've got a couple of friends that said, oh, I went to I went to medical school, you know, enthusiastic, fresh face, wanting to help everybody. And then I just learned that the main requirement of me was to not to break and to be resilient. Um, and what I hear they heard then is that resilience is this kind of 
um, really, really high expectation and something that felt really hard to live up to. And I appreciate that's one interpretation of resilience. And I imagine from the book that you two have a, a different view on that. Would you like to talk about your your interpretations of resilience? Yeah, so our favourite word is buoyant, actually, Okay. <laughs> which is a synonym for resilience, actually. Um, and that is what it's about. So so basically, we all have up days and down days, don't we? And mm. the point about resilience is that when something bad happens, you actually can bounce back from it. So it's about how quickly and how efficiently you bounce back from adverse if, if, if kind of events, really. Um, and... It, it, resilience is it's actually a bit of a dirty word isn't it sometimes mm. because people and individual resilience is like oh no we mustn't talk about that because if we make you know if we make the emphasis on individual resilience then the system won't change and it's the system that's broken and we we hear this a lot don't we when, yeah. <laughs> when we're talking to um, healthcare professionals um, and we agree the system is broken absolutely but if you don't have your own individual skills to fall back on a toolkit is what we call it. So your own resilience toolkit, then you're you'll you're kind of never going to be able to be resilient. You can make the environment as resilient as as you like, really. But if we aren't individually prepared to accept responsibility for our own kind of mental well-being, then 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 the environment would have to continually change, wouldn't it, and adapt to us. And that isn't possible realistically so it's really important that we can be resilient and we have tools that we can use to make sure that we are okay mm. and the the more resilient you are then actually the more able you will be to challenge a toxic environment and do something about it and make sure that when you teach the people that are coming through that you teach them the resilient skills so that they can then kind of challenge that toxic environment as well and continue has on your, has your experience or view on that changed at all through the pandemic um where you know obviously if there was any lack of resilience within the system it's gonna have shown um in the last couple of years do you get even with that or particularly in these last two years have you had more kickback um around that than previously what, what's your experience with clinicians I would say less actually more because I think um, in fact it was really interesting uh, we were we were speaking at um health education England session and they had a high profile GP talking about kind of well-being and mm. um and then somebody popped a question on and 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 her main issue is about the and her her role is really to challenge that toxic environment that we're in which is great and it's very good that we have people doing that but then somebody asked a question in the chat and said but what about day to day what about me day to day and and she was a bit at a loss as to what to what to say to that person and and we were like oh over here mm. <laughs> you know visitingpractice.co.uk because it is from our perspective we are practicing healthcare professionals so this is stuff that we use every day and um, that's why we recognize that it's so important because that's why we are able to be practicing healthcare professionals and do all the other stuff that we do and enjoy it and and, and be happy so <laughs> so it's there are two things that I'd like to say about about that and one is that um 
the, the system's broken and yes, the system needs to change. And we have had people say to us, please no more resilience training because you're asking people to put armor on and go in. Or you're sending like them down the mine like mm. canaries. And actually, what do you do if you don't train them to be resilient? Because we are in this, this situation. We have um, got these problems and people are still having to go to work. And um, recent research has, has showed that one in five um, physiotherapists are thinking about leaving the profession so if one in five leave because of stress then you know we're in a worse situation so we do need personal resilience we do but also the other thing to say so yeah change the system but let's let's have the resilience so that we can actually turn up to work to say what needs changing and the other thing um is that this the, as a healthcare professional we are required to be resilient we're dealing with people who are terminally ill who are grieving who have um huge physical mental health problems um, and we are required to be resilient in our work so that we can be of service to those people so so um, I think there is a real place for personal resilience and professional resilience but we're not in any way saying don't you know make everybody tough as nails so that actually we can just keep things as they are it needs to be looked at from both sides I think. Mm. Where possible to make that distinction, it's relevant. When is it inherent and in, integral to the role? Because the circumstances and emotion that is ever present. You've mentioned obvious ones there with regards to hospice workers often being the 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 pinnacle of that. And it's 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 grief and trauma inherent to the role, even on a good day in the perfect system is yeah. different to then the system failing surrounding people. And whilst this similarities, those distinctions are relevant, I think that one of the challenges with the word resilience uh, of its of its good and bad tropes and associations and semantics is that we can't we can't hide from the fact that it becomes highly charged and political and that fundamentally mm-hmm. these things with regards to some people we talk and I built a our non-profit MSK reform was built around three words, reasoning, responsibility and reform. And the responsibility word being key to it, in that it was about distributed responsibility between individuals and systems and everything in between, about the fact that there are things we can all do as a means of aspiring for reforms and changes. And I think that when, when resilience gets brought up and, and people love it or hate it, when realistically, depending on their, their framing of it and their understanding of it, it's kind of what happens. It's always what happens when you get them to define it or what you understand of it. It clearly means that their agenda is fueling their high emotions in that direction. And I think what I get concerned about, and I wondered if I could just invite your thoughts on, is that when someone's analysis of the it's not just the system of which they work in that they feel that they want to aspire to change and as you described it's like your own your own resilience will make you a better person that could help to change said system it's that when people become really nihilistic or anarchistic about the fact that it's not just the system it's society at large it's that i've got to become an advocate for world change of which is you know a a, a fair point of of which there's of course a room for activism but if there's an implication that there is literally nothing that they could or should do themselves then it becomes something that for me I'll admit becomes unworkable is that is that me uh, just needing to uh, work better in that direction to understand that or have you encountered a similar sort of sort of sub demographic that just aren't necessarily ready for this message I think interestingly when we speak to people the higher up the higher up an organization you go the less interested in resilience people actually are. <laughs> so, so basically, the people at the top 
are there probably because they are fairly resilient mm. and probably because they're not doing face-to-face patient contact anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and down at the bottom, the people who are seeing patients day-to-day are really interested in it and really want to, you know, and, 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 and we get, you know, feedback from our courses where people saying, this should be part of training. Somebody said, these need to go on a road show around the country. And, you know, it's, there's, there's, there is such a, I, I get what you're saying. There is a really vast kind of, um, is it a vast need or is it a vast kind of um, awareness, awareness yeah, yeah. Of, of the relevance of resilience, really, I think. Does that answer your question? Or not, really. I think, I think when people are feeling um, downtrodden and sort of uh, under pressure, that's when, you know, resilience becomes a real issue for them, you know. And so um, I, I think there's a collective, uh, it, it's how you address it as well, whether you address it in terms of um, we're going to do something about it, can we um, can we give people something or are we going to just, you know, complain about the system being broken and, and, and um sort of identify as somebody who works at the NHS and of course you know it's terrible and we're really overworked and 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 that actually there is an awful lot personally that you can do but as as we said we come up against some resistance there and I think the resistance is there from people whose role it is to advocate change of the system and we look like we're contradicting that and uh, we're not at all but but um and because like I say I think it's it's twofold resilient people create resilient environments and the most effective way to create change is to ask the people on the front line what needs to happen and the likelihood is they'll say well there need to be more of us but then you know um uh, it's looking at everybody's mindset and and having a collective view as to how the system would be made better and you need to be resilient to do that and am i right in thinking that the mechanism and the and the, and the description of the work that you guys do is, is based on a, at least a, the person being that you're working with needs to have a, a concept of human agency that does means that they feel that they have some capacity to change if they've gone far enough just to feel that they are essentially just, just passengers and that they don't have that agency am i right in understanding that they, they're kind of they're not beyond help but i just mean there's not necessarily a readiness to engage with that material but we would challenge that you see because you what we would say to them is really what our training is about is self-awareness so it's about recognizing and understanding why you respond to things in the way that you do so is that because of stuff that's happened in your past is that because of you know a negative underlying core belief that you hold because there are things that you can do about those things yeah what you're doing right now is what you're doing right now it's not fixed it's it, it's a choice that you are you've decided or it's a set of strategies that you've decided to employ up right. till now yeah and actually that can all be changed and reframed which is why we like that word reframed because everything can be reframed and then people can move forward and resistance is a huge thing um and we write about a bit about that in the book really because that that's probably the key thing isn't it is when when it's easy to do nothing because even if you're in a terrible situation, at least you know what's going on in your situation, whereas the future is unknown. And so actually, it's, it's, a, it's a bit scary, really. And that's what stops people from taking that step forward. So it's about recognising where the blocks are for you. And then we, there are tools in the book for all of that, for all of the blockages. Even if it's uncomfortable, we, we often say being stuck is quite a comfortable place to be because you know exactly where the discomfort is. 
But if you're going to change and become uh, see yourself as somebody who behaves in a way, this, this is not me. That's not what I do. I don't advocate for myself. I'm not assertive. I, can't, I don't like confrontation. You start to see yourself because that's not who you are. That's just who you what you've been doing up to now uh, because of your past experiences and core beliefs and so on. If you start to re- if you start to look at your personality and 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 challenge, you know, is that really who I am, or is it just something I've agreed to be because that's the safe area? When you start to move beyond that, that's an uncomfortable um, situation. So often people will stay sort of in that comfortable. It reminds me of a question place. I often ask clients, Chrissy, along the lines of. Um, what have you been unwilling to do in order that you can keep this challenge? And um, people's reaction is usually, well, that last bit just doesn't make sense because that implies that I, you know, I, I want to keep this. And I usually... In actual fact, we all are attached <laughs> to our, everything that we resist is because we're attached to the, not what what feels um, familiar. Um, I actually asked a, a lady who had chronic headache really courageously because I was at the end of what can I say and I said, what mm. do you have to lose from being well? And she said, I'd have to get a job, I'd have to go out of the house. She just reeled <laughs> off all these things that she was not willing to do because it was outside the comfort zone. And that's really illuminating for people. And we're all the same. We're all attached to the things we're trying to get rid of. If you, It's not easy to let go of. It's because you're attached to it. And, mm. and it's fulfilling some kind of need within you. And this is about exploring. And we try and do it in a lighthearted way because a lot of what we do is really heavy work. <laughs> and, and, and some of the courses that we do, people like, oh my god it's all within me and actually yeah it is but then when you look at that that means it's all changeable and the other thing I was going to say when Karen was talking about um um being uh sort of stuck in the situation and we talk in the book about something called locus of control so Mm -hmm. if your locus of control is internal it means you basically accept responsibility for everything which means it is subject to change and you can do something about everything in your life if it's external it's basically you know the environment is making me like this it's because this happened to me it's because I have this illness because I have this diagnosis and it's really about we're, we're teaching people to take response accept responsibility for their own well-being because no one else is going to do that for you and so so this is about empowering people mm. With great responsibility comes great power. <laughs> yeah. So do you find having, as we've all acknowledged that the, the process is uh, an individual or becomes an individual process when you apply it, but um, with your work on core beliefs, do you see any patterning of core beliefs within health professionals? That's the first part of my question. And secondly, as a physiotherapist and a doctor or people that work with, um, let's say, doctors and, and other health professionals, do you see any differences in core beliefs that you could separate out even you know, within different professions? There's definitely archetypes that are common to yeah. all of us. We've yeah. all got healer. If you, if you um, read Carl Jung um, and, and talk about archetypes, we are all, all um, sort of channeling the healer archetype, mm-hmm. sometimes mother. So definitely things that are common in the caring profession I would I, uh, we often ask as well who among our delegates were told that they were caring as a child and I definitely thought 
put my hand up at that because somebody said oh you know you're really okay you're so good with animals or you're so good mm. and then you go yeah that's me I'll have that and then you kind of perpetuate that because it's it's met approval from the adults and and then you will seek to get more from that and fulfill that need so so there's definitely um I think I think that in terms of negative core beliefs, core beliefs. most of us are yeah. around it's around self worth. <laughs> there are two. If you talk about negative core beliefs, um, we we went through uh, sort of lists and lists of things that people said they believed about themselves that were not positive. And our own stuff here as well. And our own, and distilled them down to two. One is. Um, I'm not worthy, not worthy, not worth it. And the other one is I'm broken or defective in some way. And I know that you've talked about imposter syndrome, haven't you, in the past? And and I we would say that's it. I'm, I'm broken. I'm faking it. I'm basically, oh, yes. uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not worthy of having the title and I'm faking it and I'm I'm broken. And, and imposter syndrome is the perfect storm between those two things, isn't it? It yes, is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it encompasses them both. Yeah. Um, so that's very common. Uh, and, and you'll see it manifest in people who need to be right all the time because they need to, to disprove that and you'll see it in people pleasing health professions who, who will be the one who stays on and does you know after hours stuff and and doesn't get you know um doesn't say no get yeah doesn't say no and doesn't doesn't you know sort of put an overtime um sheet in or whatever and and uh, so yeah I think I think those would be the so they're the two common um underlying core beliefs and we think they are universal actually mm-hmm. um when you think about thinking about different groups of healthcare professionals I, I actually think it, it it is fairly universal I just wonder yeah. whether sometimes with doctors whether they are less um maybe a little bit less able to talk about underlying core beliefs and things like that um mm. although we have been but, quite surprised actually, yeah, when we first started happened. to do some shadow work we were a bit um, worried Karen about said, how we can do this and actually we started to talk about shadow and we were amazed by people brought their stuff to the table and talked really in a, in a very heartfelt way opened themselves right up and and that's what made us sort of think well there is there's room for a lot of depth here we can really explore with people you know are you doing that without are you doing that without selection or is there a selection bias is this is this course participants or is this random random allocated um, it it depends. The, the RCGP is self-selecting, so it's people who want to do resilience work, so they'll book on the course. But then we've worked with Neurology Academy and, and people like that where they've asked for a course to put on for their team, so it's a bit of a mix. Because I'm definitely not doubting what you describe it there, um, uh, but it's just wondering, I, I'm just so interested as to try and work out, is this is this a subset by, by selection or, or is this something that really, even on, on the macro, it would surprise us how how ready um even even professionals or subsets within them are are for this i suspect that our course is a bit like marmite either actually so i think there will be people that love it and think it's amazing and um there will be people who are like oh i can't even you know i can imagine talking about you know my conditioning or what you know what happened to me in my early life or you know um shadow work is something so basically, that's about when somebody annoys you or irritates you, recognizing that actually it's probably reflecting a small part of yourself back at you. Um, and so people people find that challenging. But if people can keep an open mind and actually have a look at this kind of stuff, oh my goodness, it's it's so empowering. It's just unbelievable. We've had people it do really a, a complete one eighty on, on the course who've come on the course and been quite bit, resistant yeah. and quite sort of. Um, uh, 
you know, standing back and then by the end of the course have said, I am blown away. I can't believe and I feel so empowered. I feel like I can go away and challenge things now. And and, and it is amazing. It, it, I mean, we've done courses across the board and it is amazing how people will respond to it and, and you wouldn't have expected it. I find your um, the chapter about shadow work really interesting in the book because I hadn't heard that phrase. I suppose I'd... Um, heard people talk about you know addressing your demons or you know the bits of you like you say that you get irritated by in other people and and possibly it's triggering something um like a, a mirror to you um have you guys heard I think I think Brenny Brown says this where she talks about such a thin line between I'm not good enough and I'm actually better than all of you um and she says that there's a you know they seem like polarizing statements but for many of us, it's just a hair's breadth to flip from one to the other. And, yeah. I, and I can see that in health professionals. You know, there's, yes. we, we talk about competition and how much we hate it. And yet we are part of our people, please, or part of our perfectionism maybe is actually, or oh, if we do get a prize for being the best, or we do get our patients better more than the next person. It's a little bit of, oh, and, and I think we ride that that line quite a lot and, and that's yeah. that's quite complex isn't it and a little bit it is there's a lot to lose though then if you if you're not the best you yeah. oh god I was right all along I'm I'm not worthy and I'm, I am broken yes and exactly. actually I think that whole oh look at me I've actually and then everything's riding on that you know if you if you've beaten everybody else and all your patients are getting better or, or like you say if you win a prize you're like oh yes and, and it's almost you're operating on that illusion of I was you know and then as soon as it cracks or breaks you're right back down to yeah and your resilience would be nothing in between yeah Yeah. but your resilience would be okay I I didn't do the best on that one but I'll bounce back as opposed to yes that's confirmed I am I'm not the best so therefore I'm absolutely terrible or actually what would be 100% the best thing for everybody and would be actually to reframe those negative core beliefs Yeah. yeah so actually you distill it down to oh I didn't get the job it's because I'm not worthy then you go down there and you say, actually, you didn't get the job because there was somebody who was better qualified or you didn't get the job for, you know, for whatever reason. It's not a kind of a personal reflection on you and it's not a um, it's not a piece of evidence that confirms or reaffirms your negative core belief. And so we actually do need to tell ourselves quite a lot that we are worthy and that we are fully, fully whole and, you know, actually capable of whatever we want to do really and mm. um and worthy of great kind of happiness and, and I know it sounds very American <laughs> but actually it really is important that people say that to themselves on a regular basis so actually what what we start to do is um we start people off with have a look at what you do say to yourself on a regular basis because usually that is reaffirming those negative core beliefs so calling yourself stupid yeah I don't allow my children to use the word stupid because Mm. I think it's a horrendous word but I call myself stupid quite often really and that um, and and I have to catch myself and say oh hang on a minute hang on a minute did you really mean that did you really want to say that to yourself today or is there something better that you could say to yourself and that that's reframing Mm. I could just circle back as well talking about the you were saying about the um you know if I'm the best and I win a prize and so on um I just wanted to mention the word ego because we we talk about this in the course as well and there's a lot of 
of things in the mind, body, spirit sort of sector, talking about um, banish your ego, kill your ego, your ego's out to get you. But actually, um, ego is something that will challenge the negative quarterly. So it will make you feel great for a while, you know, if something good happens. And um, ego kicks in when somebody threatens something that's yours. So, um, for example, you know, your possessions, your status, your your job type, your mm. being the best, all of those things that you believe you are, if they mean something to you, then and somebody threatens it, then your ego will kick in. And it's a really important part of the psyche that is there to protect you and keep you safe. And it's not a bad thing. But as always, we say, observe and choose. So, you know, when you feel your ego go, Woo, you would, you know, when you said when you win that prize and go, I am the best. Yes, of course. <laughs> and all those negative core beliefs go away and are completely in this, you know, you can't remember them. And then um, is to observe it and say, oh, you know, that's my ego. Thanks very much for sharing. Let's get back down to earth now. And it's really what we teach is a real awareness of those mechanisms when they come up in you to go, oh, I see ego there. And another one that's really important is fear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, when we were talking about staying stuck because it feels safe, um, there are four archetypes which are mentioned in the book which will stand in the way of you moving forward and you can when you learn about them you can feel them kick in and you say oh hello I'm moving into victim that's uh, and that's really interesting now if I'm moving into victim oh, I can't do that because the system's rubbish and I or I've got such and such a diagnosis I can't possibly then we have to ask ourselves do we want it to run or not that's the point you observe it come up and and you say well that's fear I'm coming in the way of myself moving forward I can see myself going becoming victim or child or whichever do I want it to run or not and if you don't want it to run you sort of say to yourself thank you very much for sharing I understand it's a fearful situation but I want to move forward anyway and you you challenge those archetypes stepping in you challenge the uh, the ego as well by saying yeah that feels great but that is only one prize and let's get back to you know and and it's about really it's really about self-awareness and understanding what the mechanisms are kind of acknowledging them and then deciding with intention consciously what you want to do Mm. reminds gives gives me sort of echoes of second wave cbt 101 where you have a recognition of those things are bubbling up and then you're making that decision as to whether or not they are able to manifest uh, and influence you third wave of course then being act which didn't necessarily counter it but certainly brought in this idea that, that sometimes those things especially in the msk game when we realized that of course pain very rarely or you could never really disembody it from other systems not a psychological phenomena and therefore becoming multimodal act became popularized under the fact that this is going to be something there that can't be unlike um fear it is something that therefore might need to be accepted and committed to change it um and i just wondered how in, in your work, do you do you marry those at all, um, or, or, or are you of a of a of a school of a school of thought that favours that second or third wave in in your work? So you can't unhinge mind and body; they're hundred percent connected, aren't they? So when people are in pain, they will feel down, and when people are down, they will feel their pain more keenly. So that's I mean I think that's accepted. Um, I talk to people. Uh, on the CBT model all the time like multiple times a day so basically our thoughts are what generate our feelings which drive our behaviors and then they all interact and drive us around in a negative kind of spiral but I then take that one step on which is about where do those thoughts come from 
then the thoughts actually come from the negative core beliefs. And so that's why people then need to step down into looking at where their responses are coming from. Why are they responding to the situations that they are in, in the way that they are? You yeah. do you do hold an opinion with regards to that as a chicken and egg question, right? So infamously, what you just described there as a cycle, yeah. there's, there's, there's a, there's, and I'll probably really keen if we've time to be persuaded on this uh, in the presence of, of you three especially but I, I would say when I hear that cycle you've just described and we can name many other things within that cycle I would probably opt out of choosing a point of causal inference on what it is that starts that right if you had to go down to basics and say this this be the entry point that then creates a spiral, I would probably not, I'd opt out of that philosophically. Am I right in thinking, Karen, you feel that... that It's your core beliefs. Belief, you think core, core beliefs... Yeah, point. yeah, 100%, yeah. Right. And actually, and, and that's they are... Better, re- yeah, I mean, okay. and again, it, it, it takes work to reframe them, and, it, you know, we never finish working on ourselves, but recognition of them is so important because it takes the kind of oh god why do I feel so dreadful why is this happening why am I doing that why am I going back and doing the same thing and I know it causes harm recognition that that is there well it again it gives you the power back doesn't it it allows you to address those core beliefs and ask and challenge is that true you know am I worth rubbish am I worthless and and to actually to do the work on 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 um, affirming that in actual fact you are worthy you know this is what you've achieved this is what you can do this is how you can be of service to people so it's it's challenging those negative core beliefs that um, will lead to you not automatically just having that thought I'm rubbish and then the behavior coming from mm. it and then something that so actually that's where you break the cycle you can break the cycle in the way that you say you know that you stop it there and you say I'm not going to go around again but actually when you go and look at the root cause and challenge that 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 is where you start to to alter your thoughts and thoughts feeling both both prior and afterwards thoughts feelings experiences feedback based on outcome would would inform the core beliefs well they affirm them they reaffirm them don't they where did they come from where did they come from is that is that you make core beliefs are created in your lifetime conditioning conditioning and um, how you develop as a person yeah and not just what you're told or your life experiences but the way that your parents behave the way that other people behave towards you how you build your model of the world you come brand new with no expectations or understanding of how everybody is going to be you're entirely hardwired to survive and so you will be as a as an infant looking for behavior that's approved of anything that gains approval attention and that is the opposite of abandonment because for a child abandonment is death so you're basically looking at anything that gets a positive outcome you will take on board and employ it as a strategy and it's those strategies that follow us into adulthood that we're still trying to meet those needs and actually they don't suit anymore they're not appropriate anymore because now we can survive but they're still kind of deeply rooted these kind of need this need for approval is a massive one and especially in healthcare professionals because we need our patients to say oh that was lovely thank you or we need somebody else to say oh you did a good job there it's and actually that comes from very early in life where approval equals i'm not going to be kicked out of the tribe sure so that's it so am i right in thinking because that's that's great thanks for thanks for your answers and i feel like i understand what potentially is still a, a, a disagreement it, it, blank slate 
theorists, that's something that you feel you would identify as then, I imagine? Well, you, you have a genetic blueprint, but actually how you develop depends on what happens through your early life. So all of the things that happen to you kind of impact on that, don't they? So this is the whole nature-nurture question, isn't it? So, yeah, um, on the, on the nature-nurture thing, where if, you, if, you, if I forced a ratio from you, where would you be? Well, you've got your genetic, I'm not going to give you a number, but your genetic, <laughs> blueprint. <laughs> your genetic blueprint, basically, you will inherit certain pro- processes, that, but you, you'll inherit things genetically, processes, ways of processing. And Possibility. You know, when you look at people that, who are on the spectrum and so on, we clearly psychologically or, you know, we have different formats, if you like, but then there is so much that is learned, A, from how your parents process things, how people around you process things, and also from experiential learning. So something happens, it makes you feel rubbish, so you don't, you, you know, you avoid happened. it. And, mm-hmm. and something uh, happens and it gets positive results. So, so it's definitely a combination of the mm. two. So particularly this year, I guess things might be a little bit different, but I was just wondering what are the main areas of need that you're seeing from clinicians? Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be MSK clinicians, although obviously that's uh, the audience for this podcast, but are there some real sort of key areas of need that you're seeing at the moment? Burnout, that's a huge, I mean, that's a big word, isn't it? It covers mm-hmm. loads of things. Um, things that people talk to us about when they come on the course or talk together with each other, um, complaints, workload, time pressures, um, patient expectation, and then interpersonal relationships within their team. Conflicts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. They're the big things. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a, does that ever change? I'm not sure, really. <laughs> yeah. You, go, you think that reaches so many different challenges anyway doesn't it but they've just been emphasized haven't they in a massive mm-hmm. way and we've spoken mm-hmm. joe about that many times on chewing it over and on new matter mm-hmm. and things i suppose the route the route through it's the the, the, the key one isn't it what would you say would you if you had to if you had to pick favorites on on what you feel would be the uh, the, the best way to, to to combat those um self-awareness all the way basically understanding how your own stuff impacts on how you perceive what's happening so within conflict within consultations, um, when feeling pressured time-wise, all of those things are about your perspective and understanding how your stuff, your mindset, you know, if you always feel rushed, if you always feel like you're not giving enough, you know, it, again, it comes right back down to all of those those things that make us who, who we think we are. And um, definitely would say communication. Um, we, we, we wrote recently a few articles around contaminated messages and, and you know, not saying your words not being aligned with what you're saying so um in a conflict you know oh I'll do this again I mean even though I've been at work all day and so on and so on what you really want to say is I'd like you to do that because I would like some rest because I've been at work and I think at work Our, our our contaminated messages we, we're communicating how we feel without actually saying it and our words aren't aligned and we teach very much clear communication how to clean up what you're saying to somebody so that you're actually using the words to convey what it is that you want that person to hear um, and and also receiving contaminated messages so when you're being spoken to in a way that you, you somebody's saying oh you know washing up was left on the sink again you know you that's a fact that's and what I'm actually saying is I'm annoyed with you because you didn't wash up but but and so at work I think it's about what 
So if somebody's saying something that they're obviously saying something that they're not saying, what I'm hearing is that you're quite annoyed about that. Is there anything I can do to improve that other than wash up, you know? Um, and so we, we're teaching very clear communication, but we're teaching um, self-awareness in the consultation, self-awareness with colleagues, um, you know, when things come up in us to recognise them, to, to identify what they are and to decide whether to let them run or not. And... Um, and uh, and and sort of um, to to basically clean up how we how we speak to each other in conflict. And I would say observe and choose. That would yeah. be my hundred percent. So basically, just step back from the situation, observe what's happening, and then make a conscious choice about what you want to do next. Because you do not have to do what you've always done. That's your. That's what you've been doing up to now. And it's you can choose to do things differently. You can choose to say something differently. You can choose a different behaviour. You can choose a different response. I can't wait to read it because I honestly say it sounds like you found a cure for passive aggression. <laughs> which you, what what a what a, uh, what a phenomenal uh, gift to the world that would be <laughs> proliferated, particularly in, in healthcare, because you've got yeah. able communicators choosing to use euphemistic language because it's more powerful. In yeah. an aggressive, passive-aggressive manner. Interestingly, though, it says an awful lot about them. Yeah, that's yeah. what I would say. So they think it's making them powerful, but actually, really, it's not because it's exposing them quite, quite a lot, really. And Easy so we, to, we all should be conscious. Yeah, we, we, we. I mean, Joe, I think probably. Uh, off, off air more than on air we, we both have a bit of a pet peeve on, on on those sorts of things, don't we? And we say about being a, a classic mask. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm perpetually trying to develop my passive aggression now. Although I do like a very cleanly communicated complaint rather than, you know, you know, can we just cut to what you're actually trying to say? Because I just really would like you to say that you're annoyed with me because, you know. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant right it just 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 stands ever more reason for my uh brooked tweets that's what i keep seeing that's, that's what's happening there but Clean communication. Um, yeah um so just to just to bring it to a to a close if you could just tell us a little bit about i mean we've obviously got into some of the detail but there's much more to discuss but if you could let us know about the about the, about the book about the course and, and how people can find out more about you guys Okay, so um, so the book is available on Amazon. I think it's at Waterstones. It's um, published by Sheldon Press, um, and it if if people do read it, we would love you to review it actually because I don't um, think we've said the title yet, Karen. Oh my goodness! <laughs> okay, <laughs> so our book is called How to Rise: A Complete Resilience Manual, um, and and it's been out, yeah out with Sheldon Press. Um, it is we also have a website which is www.resilientpractice.co.uk we post a um, well-being article every week which usually has a tool of some sort connected to it so something new that people can try um the courses are our courses are listed on the website um we we're running them with rcgp we're running them with health education england and um I guess if you're interested, Jack, then we would be interested in talking to you about running them with you. Um, if listeners are interested, get in touch. Yeah, we, we're, we're quite happy to design bespoke courses for people and uh, we're always happy to talk about wellbeing, resilience and, and we're, we're developing our courses. So, you know, if anybody feels that they would like something, then please do send us an email. 
Absolutely. And, and, of and course, we're on Twitter and Facebook as well. Oh, and Instagram. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> what, and what are the handles on Instagram and Twitter then? What, what uh, Twitter is resilientpract1. Um, and, uh, and Instagram is um, resilientpractice how to rise. No spaces. Because right. <laughs> there wasn't uh, enough. Uh, <laughs> no. well, for, uh, it sounds like it'd be, be easy to find, especially uh, when yeah. you, you guys are very Googleable from when we were doing our, uh, our, our looking into you. And, and it's really great work, but super important. And I would say to anyone that's listening, if you want to pursue this, then obviously you can get in touch with us, info at physio-matters.com for us to signpost you to any of it. And also, as um, has as been alluded to, Jim's working on an idea as to how we can try to bring this to and make it as, as specific and as bespoke as is necessary for our audience. So do get in touch if you want to pursue this further and it just feels like this is clearly uh, the first of many conversations we can have uh, between us on, on various different parts of it joe i wondered if there's anything else you'd like to add before we close i oh, just really loved hearing about what you've been doing thanks so much um you've uh educated me on a few distinctions given me some new terms for things which i've thought about and it's very helpful to put, put names to them yeah i'm looking forward to chatting to you both more Thank you. Thank you so much Thanks. for having us. Absolutely, no you really enjoyed it. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, great. So, hope you enjoyed that and found that super useful. I'm sure, as I did, you are left yearning for more information about how to be more resilient in your practice as well so as i mentioned at the top of the show don't forget to check out the events we've got with karen and chrissy that will be on social media just hit twitter at tpm podcast we're also on instagram facebook um, you can find the details there with the same name and um we've also don't forget to check out the book discount in the information of the podcast as well. We'll be back in a month's time. We're edging closer to our, our 100th episode. We've only got about five more before we get there. We'll have some special stuff going on for that. Mad that we've managed 100 months in a row without, uh, or nearly 100 months in a row without missing. A few million downloads and um, not a little bit of stress later, but hopefully you've enjoyed all of them. Why not go back and listen to some of the old ones as well? Um, and if you haven't through all of that time, give us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to. It does really help us out and we don't ask for that very often. So do do that. And then finally, if that's not all enough for you, go and sign up for your free Therapy Live Sport ticket and we will see you there. So all that's left for me to do is do the sign out as um, I don't get to do it very often and I always like to try and do that when I can. So you've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast discussing physio matters because physio matters. Bye for now.